Morning, church. In case you haven't got the chance to meet, my name is Tellus Fuller. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. There is a uh, song that we just got the opportunity to sing. We give you all the glory. We worship you, Lord. And I was talking with Pastor Corey down here at the front, and we were considering really what that means because for us to really worship him truly, I believe we have to understand truly what we're saying. And the word glory is really interesting in that it means a whole lot of different things. It can mean splendor or fame or honor, light, beauty. And one of the meanings of glory is weight. The weight of something. Yes, it means that God is absolutely weighty and that when you see the glory of God appearing to people often in scriptures, they oftentimes fall on their knees. Why? Because he's so beautiful, so bright. Yes, and also I believe because there is such a weight to the glory of God when it comes into a room. It's the manifested presence of God. And yes, we know Psalm 139, God is everywhere. There isn't a place where God is not. And there are places where he absolutely is. And when he manifests his glory, often what happens to us is that we should have the posture to fall on our knees because of his weight. And you consider, well, if the song says we give you all the glory, what would it mean for us to understand that God, in that moment, I am giving you all of the weight? All of the weight that I'm carrying, all of the weight that my family is carrying, all of the things that I'm trying to do by myself. Lord, in that moment, I don't just worship you. I throw my cares upon you, knowing that you can carry it so much better than I can. We're about to get into the word, but I want to pray that the glory of the Lord wouldn't leave us, but it would stay with us in this service. Would you pray with me for a minute? Lord Jesus, keep your glory here. Let us feel the weight of your presence among your bride. We don't want to play church games and get through a service when we're ultimately here to meet you. So Lord, it's all on the altar, all of it every single bit of this service afresh Lord Jesus and in your heart or out of your mouth would you say Lord my heart is yours (laughs) God get glory from this heart Holy Spirit land on us and stay with us in Jesus name Amen Amen. We're going to be in Luke chapter 2 this morning, and we're going to pray again real soon. So don't get your prayer prayed out. We're about to pray some more. Luke chapter 2. And before we read, we've been in a series called Jesus is King. And this series has entirely been about the advent of Jesus coming to us. A few weeks ago, Pastor AJ preached an amazing message about Jesus is King. And if we could sum up this entire series in one sentence, it would simply be that it is good news that Jesus is King. And it's good news because the world is not as it ought to be. So Jesus came and is putting and has put the world right Therefore, it is good news that Jesus is king, and it is good news that you don't have to be. 
Last week, Pastor AJ talked about what the kingdom of God is, that the king comes and he brings a kingdom. The kingdom of God is simply, we found in Corinthians, righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And today we're going to look at a different aspect of the king in Luke chapter 2, verse 15 through 20. So would you stand with me as, the, as we read the word of God and honor its authority over our lives? Luke chapter 2, verse 15 through 20 says, And when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. I want to title this message really simply, The King of My Heart. The King of My Heart. Would you pray with me for a minute? Lord Jesus, you are the King, and we invite you right now to be the King of this service. You rule over it. Lord, rule over me right now. Lord, if you're not glorified in any other place, be glorified in this place. And Lord, if you are not glorified in any other heart, be glorified in this heart. Father, we love you so much. And more importantly, you love us. Holy Spirit, empower us to live, look, and love more like Jesus today than we did yesterday. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You guys can take your seats. Thank you for praying. The king of my heart. Your heart plays an integral part in your relationship with Jesus. Your heart plays an integral part in your relationship with Jesus. And I don't believe that we can truly be in this series, Jesus is King, talking about the kingdom, if he is not first the king of our hearts. I don't even think that we can honestly pray the Lord's prayer, truthfully and honestly and faithfully, unless he's the king of our hearts. I don't think that we can say, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, unless and until he is the king of my heart. Why? Because sometimes I think that we beg God to bring the kingdom when God is asking you to bring the kingdom. Like we ask God, would you have your will be done here? But here's the thing. The kingdom of God is just wherever his will is expressed in the earth. And guess who expresses God's will in the earth? You. And so if the Lord is not the king of your heart, then us praying, God, you have your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're saying, God, please bring the kingdom. And God is looking at you saying, Please bring the kingdom. 
Jesus is looking for you to bring it. Why? Because if he is the king of your heart, the kingdom goes wherever you go. You bring the kingdom with you. You are filled with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, the kingdom of God is where the will of God is being done and you carry the will of God. The king of my heart means that he is seated on the throne of my heart. And don't be mistaken. You have a throne on your heart and something or someone is on it. The question is, who is on it? Maybe for us, some of us, the question is, what is on it? What is on the throne of my heart, truthfully? And the heart is a really interesting topic historically, even when you look through literature and ancient civilizations, because so many civilizations and writings have aimed to try and define the heart and then try and tell us what the heart does. You find in ancient Mesopotamia that they believed and knew that the heart was the source of life. That if your heart wasn't beating, then you weren't living. It was just this natural thing. You go to ancient China and they believed that the heart was actually the seat of your intelligence, that you thought with your heart. You go to ancient India and they say that your heart is actually your inner self, your one's self. You go to ancient Greece and what they believe is that your heart is the source of all of your emotions. In ancient Greece is really interesting because they believed that we had two souls, one in our heart and one in our brain. The heart was the thymos, which was the passions and your emotions and your feelings. It was the carnal part of you, but your brain was your psyche, and that was the logical, the reasoning part of you. And if you know anything about Greek culture, they prioritized and praised leadership, uh, uh, logic and reasoning. And so they said, if you want to be a fully developed, mature, truthful, honest human being, you have to squelch and push down your thymus, your heart, and you have to enhance your psyche, your reasoning. Now, isn't that almost, it's so interesting because it's almost the opposite of what we think today. Right? Like, we think that in order to be a true, authentic version of me, a real human, it's that I would actually search my feelings and then be true to what I feel. And if I'm not true to what I feel, then I am somehow an inauthentic human being. And then it, we take it one step further that if you don't validate what I feel, then you're an inauthentic human being. The Greeks had a mind that if you really used your brain, that's what made you a true human. That was your heart. It was this prideful idea. And we have this idea that if I really look inside of myself, then that's true humanity. What a fragile idea to live life by your emotions. See, the scriptures don't necessarily agree with either of those fully because the scriptures say that we are to question our heart and we are to take our thoughts captive. And so if history can't tell me what to do with my heart, if culture can't tell me what to do with my heart, and if I can't tell me what to do with my heart, then I need someone other than history, culture, or myself to tell me what to do with my heart. Might I suggest Jesus, the true king of your heart. See, the scriptures, I believe, really emphasize that your heart is in charge of two primary functions in your life. Your heart is where you trust, and your heart is where you love. Scriptures say we are to trust in the Lord with all of our heart. 
The scriptures say that we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart. I want to talk about two things. One, a trusting heart. And two, a loving heart. And that will have Jesus be the king of our heart. Mary treasured up all of these things and pondered them in her heart. She trusted with her mind and pondered about it and treasured them in her heart. It was the combination of the two that allowed Jesus to actually be the king of her heart. And while everybody else, it says in the scriptures, were wondering about the things that the angels told them, Mary was busy treasuring the things that were told to her. You see, Tim Keller, an um, amazing pastor, American pastor who passed away recently, actually said that your heart is the seat of your trust. It's the seat of your trust. If I could tell you one thing, I would tell you this. I know exactly what God is looking for from you. I know exactly what the Lord is looking for from humans, past, present, and future. And it is this one thing. God is looking for a relational trust that is birthed out of love. That is what he's looking for from you. A relational trust of him that is birthed out of love. When you look in the scriptures, you find a lot of men and women in the Bible who trusted God. Sometimes. <laughs> you look at your life and maybe you're like, oh no, 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 I'm a person who trusts God. Sometimes. Like we look at all the people in Scripture, you find Abraham, he trusted God sometimes. You find Sarah, she trusted God sometimes. You find David, he trusted God sometimes. You find Jacob, he hardly trusted God, right? <laughs> like Jacob was just wild. You find all of these people in Scripture who trusted God sometimes. Adam and Eve, they trusted God Sometimes, until we really see Jesus Christ, who came and lived a life, a relational trust that was birthed from love towards his father. Jesus says, I don't do anything I don't see the father doing. I don't say anything I don't hear the father saying. I will trust him and live my life unto him, even up to the point of death. And that is why it's so important that Jesus was your ambassador. He was the one who paved the way for you. And then when he trusted the father fully, totally, and completely, he then imputes that righteousness, that right standing, to you and then he gives you his Holy Spirit so that you can do the same. He is looking for a relational trust that is birthed out of love and Jesus was the one who did it first. We trust God sometimes. He's looking for a trusting heart and it's so important that we trust him and it's so important that when we trust him we actually trust the Jesus of the scriptures because I truly believe that you well, the way that you see Jesus dictates how you receive Jesus. You know what I mean? Like the people in antiquity, if you looked at the Jews, they would say Jesus was the Messiah, right? But they would also think of Jesus as the Messiah being a second David, a second Moses. And because of that, they thought that Jesus was going to be an avenger, he was going to avenge them and put Israel back in their place as the ruler. He's going to overthrow Rome and be this like warrior king deliverer from all of the people who were oppressing them. 
If you looked at the Pharisees, they looked at Jesus and they were like, we see a threat. Somebody who is disrupting the order and how things were supposed to go. If you looked at the crowds, you would say they saw a miracle worker. Even if you looked at the disciples, sometimes they would even see somebody who was just going to elevate their status, i.e. some of the disciples saying, Jesus, when you get to heaven, can we be on your right and on your left? You see, how you see Jesus dictates how you receive from Jesus. And some of those things are part of what he was, but they weren't entirely who he was. You see, because if you don't see him rightly, you don't actually see the real Jesus. You see a Jesus that you made up. You get to build a Jesus. You guys remember Build-A-Bear? You get to pick pieces of whatever you want, put them all together, take it home. Some of us do that with Jesus. We have a build a Jesus. We have a Jesus who doesn't really care about sin that much. He's not really concerned. That was the Old Testament, but New Testament, no, he's full of grace. He doesn't really care. We have a Jesus who doesn't really care about your money and what you give to him, but he loves to give money to me. We care about a Jesus and build a Jesus who is not primarily concerned with my spiritual disciplines. All he cares is about my intentions. We build Jesus. But the issue is, when you build a Jesus, you don't get the real Jesus. And Jesus has no obligation to bless the Jesus that you built. He blesses his Jesus. And the promise is that some of us get so discouraged or so disappointed because we are holding Jesus to fulfill promises that he never made. And that's why we have to look in the scriptures. Who is Jesus really? Not who do I say that he is. Not just who does YouTube, TikTok, Instagram, or Twitter say that he is. Not to who do your friends say that he is. But who does the scripture say that Jesus is? Because that is the real Jesus. And in order to trust Jesus, I have to see the real Jesus. If I see him wrongly, then I'll receive him wrongly. And I can tell you the way in our culture, that you will be tempted to see Jesus. You might not be tempted to see him as an avenger, as a threat, as a miracle worker, maybe some of us, but not primarily. I believe that our primary temptation in our culture is to see Jesus as simply this, an addition. Jesus is something I add to my life. C.S. Lewis has one of my favorite quotes ever. Amazing author, amazing theologian, and he says, if Jesus or Christianity is true, then it is of the utmost importance. C.S. Lewis says, if Jesus really came and died on a cross, lived a perfect life, and then rose from the dead, defeating sin, hell, and the grave, and then imputes that righteousness to everybody who believes in him by grace through faith, and then gives you his Holy Spirit so that you can do his will on earth and bless the nations, and then when you die, you are with him forever, that is of the utmost importance. There is nothing more important than that. He says, but if Christianity or Christ is not true, then it is of no importance. It's what Paul says. He says, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, us Christians are above the most to be pitied because all of us are gathering for no reason. We are still dead in our sin. C.S. Lewis says, if Christianity or Christ is true, it's of the utmost importance. If it is not true, it's of no importance. 
C.S. Lewis says the only thing that Christianity and Christ cannot be is mildly important. Your and my temptation in our culture will be to make Jesus mildly important. I build a Jesus. I make him whatever I want him to be. And he is an addition to my life. No, we need to see Jesus exactly as he is. And maybe even exactly as the angel told the shepherds that he was. Good news of great joy. A savior has been born. I don't know who you might see Jesus as. Maybe he's a moral teacher. Maybe he's a prophet. Maybe he's just a good guy. No, 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 no. Jesus is a savior. And he came to save the world. He accomplished exactly what he set out to do. See, Jesus is king, and he asks us to make him king of our hearts. It is a choice that you make to make Jesus king of your heart, not to make Jesus king. Jesus is king whether you make him king of your heart or not. And he desires your heart. Isn't it interesting that the God who has everything wants something? The God who doesn't need anything desires one thing. He desires your heart. He wants your heart. He wants all men to come to the knowledge and to be saved. There is not a single person's heart who Jesus does not want. It's so important that we trust the Jesus of the scriptures, that we see the Jesus of the scriptures, that he actually wants something. He stepped out of eternity for the sake of love. And here's the thing, I know that there are going to be some people in this room or watching this video who do not think that Jesus is worth your trust. And that breaks my heart. And I also know that there are going to be some people in this room and watching online who do not think that Jesus wants your heart. Some of us will think, or we won't give Jesus our heart because we don't trust him. And some of us won't give Jesus our heart because we don't think our heart is worth it. And if I could tell you one thing, I would say no. Friend, your heart is immeasurably valuable to Jesus. He wants your heart more than anything else. In Matthew chapter 15, I think it illustrates a point that we can see about Jesus and what he truly desires and why sometimes we don't give him that. In Matthew 15, verse 33 through 36, this is the story of Jesus feeding the 4,000. There's a time when he feeds the 5,000 and a time when he feeds the 4,000. And there's a really interesting point that Jesus and his disciples make in this story. It says in Matthew 15, 33 through 36, and the disciples came to him and said, where are we gonna get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. An incredible story where Jesus feeds 4,000 people with seven loaves and a few small fish. But there's an interesting detail about this story that always has me questioning. 
Why did they say small fish? If you're going to feed 4,000 people, I don't care how big your fish are. It's not enough. And yet, Andrew's like, we only got like seven loaves and like a few small fish. It's, it's 4,000 people. I don't care how big my fish are. I can't feed you guys. Why, why do they say a few small fish? I believe sometimes we, cons- we withhold giving things to God because we think that they are irrelevant when he sees them as significant. You see, Jesus was not asking how big the fish were. He was asking for the fish. And some of us, God is asking for your trust. And you're saying, no, 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 I have small trust, Jesus. He said, I didn't ask about the size of your trust. I was asking for your trust. Some of us are using our trust issues as a reason not to trust Jesus. Because God, it's not good enough. I'm hurt. I have a hurt trust. You don't want this. He said, I didn't ask about the condition of your trust. I asked for your trust. And some of us are busy disqualifying our trust because we think it's too small. God wouldn't want this. Jesus wouldn't appreciate this. Some of us, it makes it more practical. Some of us are saying, I only have a high school degree, small fish. Jesus, you wouldn't want to use me. Jesus, I come from a pretty broken family, small fish. You wouldn't want to use this thing. Jesus, I'm not really that good with money. You don't want my money. I don't have that much of it anyway, small fish. We, we say, Jesus, I, I'm still kind of stuck in this addiction, and I know you want my life, but once I clean myself up, I, let me just get rid of this addiction, small fish. What might you be calling irrelevant that Jesus is calling significant? He's not asking about the size of your fish. He's asking for the fish. And if you would give it to him, he would not just multiply it, but he would bless it. Small fish. It's really interesting being a pastor because people oftentimes try and like, not intentionally or vocally, but they try and convince me that they love God. And it's this interesting part that I think they like want me to like put in a good word for them, to him. And they're like, hey, Pat, like, and they want to show me that they trust him or show me that they love him. And that's great. I'm really happy that you love Jesus. And it doesn't really matter if I believe that you trust Jesus. Jesus has to believe that you trust Jesus. And that trust does not need to be shown to everybody else. It has to be shown to him. That is the one place where your trust is supposed to go. It's it's so encouraging that Jesus knows our heart. And Jesus knows if you trust him. But it's also scary because Jesus knows if you trust him. You know what I mean? Like that sentence can go both ways. Jesus knows if you trust him. Oh, hey, Jesus knows if you trust him. And you don't have to convince anybody else that you trust Jesus except for Jesus. It's important that we have Jesus seated on the throne of our hearts. Because when we live by Jesus' rules, we get Jesus' results. But if you live by your rules, God will graciously give you your results. 
when you believe. <laughs> She's like, can you say that one more time? <laughs> I'll say it again. If you believe. <laughs> If you live by Jesus' rules, you'll get Jesus' results. But if you live by your rules, you'll get your results. And don't hear me say, if you live by Jesus' rules, you'll be blessed the rest of your life. No. Jesus said you're going to have trouble. But he's going to be with you in it. I need to get on to the next point. When we trust Jesus, you will trust Jesus when you believe that your life is better in his hands than it is in yours. That's when you will trust Jesus. You think about Adam and Eve in the garden. But as long as you believe that your trust is more reliable than his, you, you will never have him be king of your heart. In the garden, Adam and Eve were in paradise with God. And then they sinned. How did that happen? It's because the enemy came in and slipped in a lie that God was not trustworthy. That's what he did. He said, did God really say that you couldn't eat from that tree? You know, the reason he said that is because he knows that if you eat it, you'll be like him. God's not really good. And how tragic is it that the enemy said, if you eat from it, you will be like him. And God doesn't want you to be like him. But don't you know that Adam and Eve were already like him? And Adam and Eve fell for the lie. And there's something that you need to know about how the enemy works because if you don't know his schemes, you will fall into them. The enemy is the father of lies. That's what he does. He always lies to us. And his lie will be to tell you that Jesus is not trustworthy. But the enemy doesn't just lie with lies. The enemy lies with facts. This is really important for some of us here because some of us think enemy is just going to tell me a lie and that's where I'm going to catch him. No, if he just lied to you with lies, you're too smart for that. You think that's just not a fact. But the enemy doesn't lie to you with just lies. He lies to you with facts, i.e. God said you shouldn't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Fact. It's because he's not really good. Lie. Your life. Yeah, I know that you were sinning last week and you're still stuck in sin. Fact. That must mean you don't really love God. Lie. Yeah, I know that you're still single. Fact. You're probably unlovable. Lie. Yeah, I know that your family kind of has a few dysfunction that's been through generations. Fact. It's probably going to happen to you. Lie. Do you see what the enemy does? He lures you in with facts so that he can crush you with lies. And what we do is we do not combat the enemy's facts with facts. We combat it with what? Truth. Jesus says that you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So when the enemy comes at you with lies in the shape of facts, you do not respond with facts. You respond with the truth. I know that you said that, but I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Enemy, I know that you're telling me that I'm not worth it, but he told me that his thoughts about me outnumber the grains of sand on the earth. I know that you're telling me that I'm not good enough for God, but guess what? It is by grace through faith 
faith that, and so it, that I'm saved so nobody can boast. I know I don't feel free, but I know who the Son sets free is free indeed. I know I don't feel like the righteousness of God, but Jesus said that I'm the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. When the enemy comes at you with facts, you combat him with the truth. And you can't combat him with the truth if you don't know the truth. What did Jesus do when he was in the wilderness? Enemy comes out with facts. And guess what? He was the ruler of the world. If you jump off, I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. He is the prince of the power of the air. He had that power. Jesus said, it's a fact. Jesus said, no. He combats him with the word. When the enemy comes at you with facts and lies, you don't come back at him with facts. You come back at him with truth. See, his word is trustworthy. It's a trusting heart. And lastly, as I close, it's a loving heart. This point isn't as long as the first one, don't worry. (laughs) Thomas Chalmers says, he's a Scottish preacher in the 1800s, and he preached this message um, called, it's an amazing title, The Explosive Power of a New Affection. And he says in this message, there is not one personal transformation where the heart is not left without an ultimate object of beauty and joy. The only way to dispossess your heart of an old affection is by the explosive power of a new affection. The only way to dispossess your heart of an old affection is to actually possess it with the explosive power of a new one. Some of us are trying to just stop loving bad things, but that won't work because your heart needs to love something. What we ought to be doing is introducing our hearts to the beauty of Jesus, and that will explode in our hearts and disperse every other love. The only way to dispossess your heart of an old, unrighteous, sinful, negative, fleshly, carnal affection is to actually introduce the explosive power of a new one. And the explosive power of the affection of Jesus Christ will displace every negative affection in your heart. Psalm 105, Psalm 100 verse 5 says, For the Lord God is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. His love for you is so intense and it's so consistent and it's so powerful. And sometimes ours is not. And what is tragic is that often, I won't speak for you all, speak for me. Oftentimes my heart I've turned it into a stage rather than a sanctuary for God. And what I mean is that a stage for him to perform for me, to do things for me, instead of a sanctuary where I'm called and invited to meet with him and to love him and to be with him. And what happens when we turn our hearts into stages rather than sanctuaries is we end up using God instead of loving God. In the way that we use God 
is that we binge Jesus. And what is binging if not a short period of excessive consumption? And some of us use Jesus by binging him. We go to one service and then the rest of the week, nothing. We have one hour a day with him and the rest of the day, nothing. We go to conference after conference after conference and the rest of our life, nothing. We go to one season of church and the rest of our life, nothing. And we end up binging him and using him to perform on the stage of our hearts rather than being invited and inviting him into the sanctuary of our hearts where we can actually love him. And it's heartbreaking because some of us even know how wretched it feels to be used by somebody. And sometimes we do that to Jesus. When he is just asking for you to love him. What if I told you the most powerful thing that you could do this season is to simply adore Jesus? Some of you don't believe me because you think that nothing will get done if I do that. Yeah, that's what Martha thought too. In Luke, Jesus goes over to Mary and Martha's house and he's sitting there talking with everybody at the table and Martha says, Jesus is here, I need to get busy. Jesus is here, it's time for me to get to work. Meanwhile, Mary is sitting at his feet and listening to his teachings and beholding him. And then Martha looks at Jesus and says, why aren't you telling her to help me? And Jesus says, the reason why I believe this is the best thing that you can do is because Jesus said it's the best thing you can do. He says, Martha, you're so anxious about so many things. Mary has chosen the good portion." And some of us in this room are saying, Jesus is here. I got to get to work. No, no, Jesus is here. I have to be with him. And some of us don't believe that because we still believe that I am changed by doing things for Jesus rather than being with Jesus. Friend, no, you're not. 2 Corinthians 3.18 tells us, and we will all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. You see, when you see Jesus, you become like Jesus. As you adore Jesus, you become like Jesus. As you behold him, you actually become like him. You're transformed on the inside. See, he is not looking for a heart that is so busy and a life that is so productive and a life that is so full. But he's looking for a heart that is fully devoted to him. This says, I found one love and it has dispersed every other love. I found one man who is worth my life. I found one king who is worth my heart. I have found one obsession who is worth everything. And this is my favorite part of the message because I truly believe that when it comes to your love in your heart, this is one place where the Lord prefers quantity over quality. Jesus will never ask you for more than what you've got, but he will never accept less than what you have. 
and he is looking for all of your heart. He's not looking for part of your heart. He's not looking for the cleaned up parts of your heart. He's not looking for a certain holy, moral, righteous part of your heart. And once you clean up the rest, you will give it to him. No, as we come to Jesus, Jesus makes us like Jesus. See, Jesus is not a means to an end. He is not a means to your purpose. Jesus is not a means to a moral life, although I think you'll get one. He's not a means to your purpose, although I think you'll get one. He's not a means to you being free from your addiction, although I believe you'll be free. Jesus is a means to Jesus. He will not offer you anything other than himself. And once you get him, you realize he is the best gift that I could have ever got. Jesus is not a means to a better life. Jesus is the means to a new life. Jesus is the means to Jesus. And when you come to him, guess what? You get all of him. He's looking for a relationship that is trusting, that is birthed from love. If you would give him a trusting heart, all of it, and a loving heart, all of it, Jesus will be the king of your heart, all of it. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we love you. Oh, Jesus, we love you. You are the king, and Lord, we invite you to be the king of our heart. Remind us of how beautiful you are. We don't want to make you something that you are not. And Lord Jesus, you are indeed beautiful. You do have all of the glory, and you are worthy of all of my attention.